The following program does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff or management of WFMD. Merry Christmas. Today is December 25th. The day that uh, the majority of the Christian world has decided is uh, the day we should recognize and celebrate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're not going to do a Christmas-themed show today because we did one just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but anytime you're talking about Christ and God's Word, it's Christmas-themed, or it should be. So anyway, I just want to right off the get, uh, right off the bat, out of the gate. Wish you a, a joyous uh, Christmas Day celebration, and to our Orthodox friends, um, you know, an and, and early uh, Merry Christmas and a Day of Epiphany uh, to you, because they won't celebrate till the first week of January, <laughs> so they're a couple of weeks away. Um, anyway, last week, if you were listening, you heard us talk about uh, Bible translations, and before your eyes glaze over, hang in there. This is important stuff. All right? There's a little bit of heavy lifting. Maybe we'll leave you with some muscle soreness afterwards, but no pain, no gain. Come on. Chop, chop, let's go. Bible translations. Seriously, this is an important thing because it's the kind of thing that people who aren't believers will try to throw in the face of believers to get them off balance, to get them to doubt the Word of God. We need to understand uh, uh, why our texts uh, are the way they are, why there are different translations. You'll hear, I've I've interacted, uh, I used to... um, make my living in outside sales, you know, talking to various uh, business people and retailers and stuff and, and people with Muslim backgrounds. And I've had discussions where, oh, you have all these different Bibles. Now we have one Bible. <laughs> you know, there are different English translations of that one Bible, but it's still one Bible. There's one, the Word of God. And, and last week, we ran out of time and we didn't have a chance to shore things up the way I wanted to. We might have actually lent some, uh, some credence to those arguments that would undercut your confidence in Scripture. And that is certainly not the goal. We can and should have confidence. Uh, let's, I want to take a second just to explain real quickly uh, some of the different translational approaches. So last week we were talking about the King James, the NASB, you know, New American Standard Bible, uh, the English Standard Version, the uh, New International Version. We, we mentioned some of these Bibles last week, and there's some differences. And part of the reason is for those differences is translational approach. What are they trying to do? So you take something like the King James or the New King, New King James or the ESV or the NASB. They're attempting as best as they can to be what people would sometimes rather sloppily call word-for-word translations. There's no such thing as a direct word-for-word translation because the syntax doesn't match up with the ancient languages with with, uh, contemporary English or even King James English. Uh, Like the word order shifts around. Uh, Idiomatic language, it makes no sense in English uh, if you were to do it woodenly, word-for-word. It's like, well, okay, what's really being said there is this. There's reasons why you can have some changes, but those are um, really good study by. Bibles, I would say. The NASB, the ESV, the King James, those can be, if you're trying to, if you don't know how to read Hebrew, you don't know how to read Greek, and you want to know, well, what did the original writers actually say? Those are translations that will probably get you closer to that. Uh, Then there's the dynamic equivalency translation, which is more like a phrase for phrase or thought for thought translation. The NIV is a good example of that. They're not married to trying to make every word uh, as closely it woodenly match as possible, but they're trying to capture, okay, what is, what is this phrase or what is this sentence saying? How do we convey that in an easily understandable English? And then there's the paraphrases, which we haven't talked about at all. Those are not as useful for study of mind. That would be I the- would go so far as to, to, to call them not scripture, but commentary. 
if you use it as commentary and you don't take it as scripture, the inspired word of God, and we're, I'm referencing things like the message. Or, yeah, well, that's even beyond uh, uh, paraphrase. Like New Living Translation is not as far gone as the message, right? New Living Translation, right. NLT, is a very popular Bible that people carry around with them. But that's it. You, you don't understand. I, I have no, like somebody in my church asked me, which Bible should I read? Or here's my Bible. Is it a good one? Sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> but sometimes, well, you know, if you want to really press in and know the word, the NLT, the New Living Translation, probably not the best place for you to be. It's not that it's loaded with error. It's just it's not really God's word because they're paraphrasing it too much. And like you said, there's a lot of interpretation. It's all more translation like a commentary has, than it is like a Bible. Yeah, all translation involves some interpretation, you have to admit. But it's like way more common right. and prevalent in, in that. But the message is something other. That's almost, that's more like a storytelling version of the Bible. It's, 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 it's paraphrase on steroids, which... Again, has its place, maybe, but not if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go into a Bible study, I'm going to press into the God, the, the Word of God, and I'm going to understand what God has to say for me. The message is not the place to do that, because that's not... And in fairness to Eugene Peterson, who was the translator, or the, uh, the writer of the message, uh, that really wasn't his aim. I don't think he was trying to give us a translation anyway. So, in fairness, I don't... Well, I think also, with this whole discussion, everybody has a lens they look through. When they translate, uh, you look at the King James, um, you know, the 70 translators, um, they were uh, pretty much from the Catholic Church. Uh, their training, their visuals, their, what they were going, they were commissioned to a task and they did it. I'm grateful to God they did it. Okay. But as you go through different translations or parap paraphrasing, you, you have a lens and sometimes it's good to compare the lenses that you're looking through and try to decipher kind of what that is saying and then go back and try to go to the originals and see what is God trying to say. And, um, you know, because it's his message. It's his plan. Uh, it's his kingdom. And, you know, so if he's the author and, you know, this book was penned over thousands of years by how many different authors and the, you know, some of the authors didn't know anybody else, but as Peter says, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, some versions say Holy Ghost, um, but you get the point. And the reason that one would say ghost and one would say spirit is because they're both dealing with the Greek word pneuma and they're trying to decide, okay, how do we best translate the word pneumo and pneumo can't, they have, they have a range of possible meanings. It could mean wind, it could mean breath, it could mean spirit, it could mean ghost. So given the context, we talked about this last week, right? No word has any meaning outside of a context. So given the context, what's the best English word to put there? And I think ghost and or spirit are both fine because they're capturing the idea of an immaterial presence, being, person. Well, like in the Hebrew, ruach. Right, okay. exactly. Ruach can be breath, can be, uh, uh, it can mean wind. It could, it could mean all kinds of different English adjectives to you know, explain, but, you know, like it, it in, the, in the Hebrew, it's ruach, and then it's depending on if it's God breathing into the Adam's nostrils, the breath of life, the ruach. I mean, so it's all And this doesn't through. mean that we can't know what it's supposed to be. Absolutely. Right? Is it talking about the wind, or is it talking about God, the Holy Spirit? The context tells us which one it is, and so right. we, we can know. And this is the thing we didn't have time to say last week that I really want to make sure we don't miss again, so I'm going to say it early. So 
The Bible that you read, if you read the King James, you read the NIV, you read the ESV, the NASB, I mentioned the NET last week. If you read a good, solid translation of the Bible into English, it is totally right and appropriate for you to say, I am reading the Word of God. You can have confidence you are reading God's Word. And that the Word word. of God is 100% true all of the time and never fails. And so there are going to be some different translational decisions that are made, but never, ever, ever... Do any of those translations, unless it's the heretical uh, translation that the um, that you'll find at a kingdom hall with the Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses, Witnesses, they have their own their own. Well, translation. they add to tremendously. Yeah, and they take I, so stuff. I, if if yeah. that's the Bible you're reading, you need to get rid of it and get a, a, an actual Word well, of God Bible. Have, but the doctrine yeah. is never in question. There's never a disagreement. If you read the King James and I read the NIV and uh, Stephen's reading the uh, the NASB. We're all going to get the same doctrinal teaching from the scriptures, uh, even though we're reading three different English translations. So I, I really want to make sure that that's emphasized. Yeah, the doctrinal, I mean, you can't, you can't not hear the gospel by reading those translations. I mean, there's verses that are missing in some that we talked about last time that have, the claim has been made that that does change doctrine, but those doctrines can be found other places. You can get the Trinity out of a lot of other verses besides exactly. that John, verse in First John. There is a concerning passage in Acts, Acts 8, 37, where Philip and the eunuch are talking, and the eunuch says, look, here's water, what, uh, what's preventing me from being baptized? And, the, and then they go down to the water, and Philip baptizes the eunuch. And a lot of translations leave out the verse that says, for Philip answered the eunuch, if you believe with all your heart, your heart, then you can be baptized. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they went down to the water, and Philip baptized the eunuch. So that's uh, quite a strong doctrinal statement that's missing if you get rid of that verse. Um, and so that's... that's. But there's not a concerning. single uh, central tenet of the faith that rests on one verse. Right. Correct. There's and, not one. Yeah, and th- it, it, then it, it becomes an opinion that because if this is wrong, what else is wrong? And if that... You, you can start going down the road and you can start kind of looking for the, the hairs to split and uh, it can distract you from the main message. And so I think it's very important that uh, unless, again, you're reading a Bible that's a commentary, and even Schofield, like we've mentioned, the Schofield Bible, he wrote a lot of Bible notes in his theology and inserted it early in in American church history, and there we have um, the, let's say, the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine that seems to be so widely accepted because it was in the Bible notes. And so it did so have you an impact. be very careful, I would say, and make sure you know that there's a difference between your Bible and the notes in your Bible. The notes in your Bible are not Scripture. They're opinion that is quite often wrong. Probably in every single version of the Bible, the translator's notes are wrong in one or more places. Um, yeah, I'd say some of them are, are going to be better than others, and generally speaking, trustworthy. But yeah, they can be a guide, and they can be an aid, but they're not, they're not Scripture. They're not inerrant like the Word of God is. And the King James has that, too. I mean, there's, some, there's translator notes in Job saying that the behemoth seems like an elephant to some people, which is kind of stupid, because elephants don't have tails like cedar trees. It was quite obviously a dinosaur. Um, I hate to see what that looked like. <laughs> yeah. But, so, I mean, the King James isn't, isn't immune to that either. Um, I mean, the whole reason for the King James was actually because of that. The King of England was mad that people were using John Calvin's notes, and a couple of John Calvin's uh, uh, notes in the in the in the um, Geneva Bible 
uh, were saying that the ki- people were sometimes right to overthrow the king, and the king didn't like that. So he said, throw out the whole translation, burn them all, we're going to make our own. That doesn't have that note in it. So that was the whole reason. It wasn't to change the meaning of the text. He was just annoyed with Calvin's notes. So it w- that was interesting. Yeah, and here's something that's interesting, because you used the, the phrase last week, and uh, we didn't have time to, to, to address it at all last week, but you talked about you know the textus receptus, the received text. Uh, interesting bit of history on that is well, when the King James was, uh, was, was published and mean, being made widely available, uh, there were some guys that did back then what I used to do for a, a living, and that was marketing and advertising. They had to, they had to get this thing out in, into households, and so they basically advertised it as the received text. So it's an advertising right, it's slogan. the name of the actual text. Yeah. So, and so it's the question, received by who? <laughs> it begs the question. So I think people put a lot of, or a lot of the uh, King James, you'll see them they have on the front, the authorized version. Yeah. Authorized by who? King James. King James. <laughs> yeah. Well, who cares? Yeah. Well, right. see, politics plays into, uh, you know, over, over the uh, centuries and the millennia. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, the Word of God, I believe that it was preserved in the Paleo-Hebrew, in the Hebrew in the Aramaic, in the uh, Greek, and the Latin, and the, you know, and now we have the, seems like the common language of our day is English, even though we have many multiple languages all around the world. Um, you know, my son is a air traffic controller, and uh, the master overriding language all over the world when it comes to interaction with the air traffic control to whatever you, is English. Even though it's all over the world and everybody speaks, you... Wait a hundred years. If Jesus has returned, it'll probably be Chinese. Well, it might be, <laughs> but it's just interesting that Nats... You won't have to wait that long time. ...common language. <laughs> that's the common language of, of, of at least officially on some of those issues. So. Yeah, and, and it might be helpful. Uh, this is going to maybe geek out here a little bit, but it, it might be helpful because we have some people that like to geek out on faith debate. I hear from them on occasion uh, that when we go into areas, I think, oh, the average person is not going to care about this at all. There's somebody listening that really appreciates that we went there. So the main thing for us, really, you mentioned how, you know, the, the paleo-Greek, the paleo The main thing is what did the... Apostle Paul write in Romans. That's what I want to know. What did Paul write? And what did the Apostle John write in 1 John chapter 2? What did John write? That's what we want to know. So whatever translation or whatever textual evidence we have is going to help us to best determine what that, the answer to that question is, that's what I'm interested in knowing because that's the inspired text. John and Paul and, and uh, all the other authors of the Bible, they're the ones that are carried along by the Holy Spirit as they write. And so yeah. that's what matters. Uh, and so it's interesting. Why do we have all these disagreements? Well, one, we have a lot of English. I think, think in between shows you mentioned there's 60-plus versions of the English Bible out there now, translations. And we were talking about that off air. And one of the reasons is money, right, because of copyright. Other, co- other cultures, other countries don't have that issue that we have to discuss this. This is very much of an American problem. You go to Spanish and there's like three translations. You go to Russia and there's probably two. I mean, it, it, I don't, I don't. There's some know, languages they qu- wish they had one. Yeah, don't don't quote me on those numbers, right? But it's relatively few compared right, to English. Right. And you're right, there are plenty. And if you go to the Museum of the Bible in D.C., you'll see a whole wall full of books that have are empty that just have the name of the language on the front. There's nothing in them because there is no Bible. But they had tried to put the language, uh, every language, uh, the Bible up there. Uh, but there's like th- a couple thousand books there that are completely empty. They just have the name of the language because that's 
the extent of the Bible translation, there is none. Let me reset real quick, because I'm not sure if I introduced you guys properly at the beginning. So that was the voice of Daniel Rasby that I just jumped in on. I'm Troy Skinner. This is the Faith Debate on 930 WFMD on HD2 of 99.9 FM and on the web, of course, at WFMD.com and on podcast as well. And now about to speak is uh, Stephen Yerger. I just was going to jump in and say, are you, and ask the question to the panel. Uh, we have how many versions of Hebrew? How many versions of Greek were uh, being used at the time of the writing of the New Testament? Was it a language, a common language, a official language? What was? Because it seems like we get to English and we got 62 different versions. And I just wonder, did they have that issue in the first or second century, or can anybody... Well, the New Testament is mostly written in what's called Koine Greek, which is common Greek. So it was the common vernacular, and it was the, it was the, it was the language of common... It was the English of the day, okay. right? It was, the, it was the language that they used when they conducted business. It was, it was the language that kind of knit the empire together. Everybody kind of knew Greek. And so that's, I think, a big part of the reason why the New Testament is written in Greek, because they wanted... These were circular letters. They'd write it to a particular congregation in a particular location, but then the expectation was it was going to travel to other locations too. Uh, and we see evidence of this in the writings themselves saying that that's what they're, they're doing. So there's, but there, there also was a classical Greek and there are some, uh, there are some letters or, or books of the New Testament that have a headier kind of a Greek that uh, I'm not an expert on this, but my sense is it's still Koine, but it's a higher level. It's almost classical. So like Hebrews uh, is an example. Well, that's why there's debate over who wrote Hebrews, because the theology is the Apostle Paul's theology. But the Greek is St. Luke's Greek. And so, like, well, is it Paul? Is it Luke? Is it, uh, is it Barnabas? Is it Apollos? Is it... Did one dictate to the other? Well, and I, I've become increasingly persuaded over the years, because I've heard a few people make this argument, and it makes sense to me, but it's just an opinion, so take it for what it's worth. But I think it's very likely, perhaps even probable, in my view, that Hebrews was originally a sermon preached in Hebrew by Paul that Luke wrote down in Greek. Very interesting. And that, I, would, ex- I, that would explain the Pauline theology and it would explain the, 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 the Lucan Greek. It would, it would really help solve that riddle. It almost feels too easy, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Well, it, I, I think that sounds uh, pretty interesting because Hebrews was written to prepare the Hebrews to go from a temple sacrifice you know, the whole sacrificial system, oh, yeah. the whole it, thing. Yeah. And it prepared them for the high priest. It prepared them that they were moving from a Ephesus, a temple, a sanctuary, an actual ark to the building of God, the stones, the, the, the living, almost like the temple of God setting living stones as it pleases him, as Paul said in, in Corinthians. So there's a... That, that, that seems to fit of a preparatory work that God was preparing because everything they knew, believed, and thought and were taught was going away in yeah, or, or a had, decade or, or if so. Or if they had already become believers, it kind of had gone away. And so part of what's going on in Hebrews, I think, is saying, look, don't think about going back. There's nothing to go back to. 
There's nothing there. It's all fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the new high priest. Or he is the high priest. And so all the things you thought you were leaving behind, you now have them in Christ. Don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. That's a big part of what's going I agree 100% with you, yeah. There's two things I want to get to real quick. Uh, one is something you said last week, um, and I want to touch on that. You, you mentioned you preach from multiple translations. You read multiple translations on a daily basis. I think that it's it's great to see other translations as you know confirmation or backup or alternate commentary or whatever but i do recommend that most of our listeners pick one read that one because you need to memorize the bible and every believer should have very large portions of the bible memorized if not entire books close to it as close as you can get to that and if that you don't think that's possible call me i'll explain how it's possible i have most of the new testament memorized and i'm not the only one i'm not bragging by saying that it's not as hard as people think it is but it's a lot easier to memorize one translation than to memorize different ones that are almost word for word the same and then they're different so that you're not you, you keep getting thrown off yeah so uh, and i agree for memorization one translation is very helpful yeah i would say pick one that you that you maybe would memorize and have as your primary bible yeah. but I would not be an exclusive reader because you're not going to catch, like we, we said last week, I think, all these translators, they make so, an error here or there. You're not going to catch the errors if you're only reading one version ever. I would so, like to take the longest Psalms of the Bible, Psalm 119, and there's a scripture there that says, Thy word I've hid in my heart that he might not sin against thee. Um, that's uh, just kudos to what you were saying about scripture memorization. Um, and right. with the technology we have today, uh, maybe, you know, you're driving or you're working and you cannot be reading, but you can listen to it. You can and we had, audio. we had a whole, st uh, episode on memorizing scripture, I think a few months ago, but in, in anyway, I just wanted to make that note that if you're on information overload with 10 different translations, every Bible study every morning, then you're not going to really be able to memorize it as well. Yeah, no, I think a good so, parallel Bible could be helpful, though, where you have maybe two, yeah. two, two three or four uh, English. That are, so you can so, just kind of compare and check and, the translations. Oh, that's different. I but think I see his helpful. point, though. If, if you're going to if you're going to memorize like I, which version I've been, a, I've been a King James guy for almost you know, I was born again in 1975, and all my memorization, all my my thought and recall is King, KJV, okay? But, but I've really become attached to the NESB, so I go to the King James, pull what up I want to find through memory, and then I go, and I, I have a parallel here in front of me, KJV on one side, NESB on the other. And it, it helps, you know. And I think it's possible to have both of them committed to memory at some level. I mean, I, the New Testament sure. authors... They knew the Septuagint, which was the Greek version. Of so the I want to get to that. And the Hebrew. They knew them both. I want to get to that because I think that's, if we have a couple minutes left, that's what I want to get to uh, because a lot of the discussions of translations have to do with New Testament. And people assume that the Old Testament, trans uh, that the, uh, they all agree in the terms of the Old Testament. But they don't. And, in fact, the, the King James agrees with all the other modern translations in, using, in uh, translating primarily from the Hebrew Masoretic text. And as I had said last week, there's a lot of evidence, especially lately, to suggest that the Septuagint is actually a more accurate original Hebrew preservation. Um, Septuagint is a Greek translation, but it's a Greek translation of an older version of the Hebrew. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered, in areas where the he modern Hebrew text and the Septuagint do not agree, um, the Septuagint usually agrees with the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And so I think that's, that's really important. And there's relatively few translations of the Septuagint into English language. Brenton did one in the 1800s, um, and that's pretty uh, decent. But there's an apostolic Bible polyglot. That's why I said it's really hard to find that one, but you can get it. It's, it's, you can only buy it from his website. But he did a very good job, and there's um, some interlinear versions of that with the Greek right alongside the, the English and a couple other things. And that one is the true word-for-word word, literal things such that like the word order makes no sense in English like but you can see exactly what it uh, what it was in in the Greek um, so it I think that's interesting and I there may be some times where the apostles were quoting from Hebrew but the vast vast majority of the quotes are from the Greek uh, Septuagint text we're gonna let that be the last word because we're out of time and you know what there's still more to be said so I think we'll actually pick up on this topic next week as well we might not do the whole show on this topic next week but there's some other things I think that should be said. Now, the last voice you heard before mine was Daniel Rasby. You can uh, learn more about the ministry that he's involved with at conqueredbylove.org. Uh, Stephen Yerger is with a church called the Shabbat Gathering in uh, southern Pennsylvania. I'm Troy Skinner. My church is Household of Faith in Christ. You can find us online at householdoffaithinchrist.com, householdoffaithinchrist.com. Till next week, 167 and a half hours from now, God bless.